have you ever been to Africa? I said, no. She said, do you know how much work it would be for people there to orient you, to make sure you're comfortable, to make sure you understand what's going on? You're a student. You can't do anything here. So why don't you wait till you have a skill to offer and then you're welcome to, to, to come. And then many years later, I did take her up on that. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. If you're interested in using your strengths, gifts, and talents, bringing your life experience to bear, to make a difference for others, in ways that you find enjoyable, I think you will enjoy my conversation today with Dr. Aaron Berkowitz. He's a leading voice in neurology, global health, and medical education. He's also concerned with issues of social justice. He's written a book called One by One by One, Making a Small Difference Amid a Billion Problems. It's been praised by Dr. Sanjay Gupta of CNN as a heartfelt book that will inspire you to see the world differently and compel you to be a part of that positive change. Dr. Berkowitz is Professor of Neurology and Director of Global Health at Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine, after previously serving as Director of Global Neurology at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and Associate Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School. In these roles, he's worked tirelessly to improve access to neurology care and education around the world, including Haiti, Malawi, and Navajo Nation. In this conversation, we explore Aaron's experiences working in Haiti, the work he's done with Partners in Health. I was interested to talk to Dr. Berkowitz because I know that every one of us wants to make a difference, but we don't always know how. I found this book to be a very humble and insightful look at the challenges when we raise our hand, when we take a leadership role or we try to, and how that doesn't always work out well, but we can persist in the face of difficulty and ultimately Every single one of us does have the ability to make a difference, to make a contribution. You can learn more about Dr. Berkowitz by following him on Twitter at Aaron L. Berkowitz. And you can visit Partners in Health, PIH.org, to learn more about the incredible work that Partners in Health is doing to reduce poverty, provide a preferential treatment for the poor, and to improve the quality of life around the world. With that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Dr. Aaron Berkowitz. Aaron, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you so much for having me, Brilliant. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited you're here. Aaron, will you tell me, please, what's life about? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and I say that uh, both because I don't know and because I think that um, that mindset of not knowing, that, that so-called uh, Zen yeah. beginner's mind, right, of um, being open to, 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 to not knowing and therefore being open to new experiences, new knowledge, uh, new wisdom, and, and the humility of saying, I don't know, I think is sort of a, a guiding principle for me in, in both my work in, in medicine, neurology, and, uh, and in life as well. So I'm going to give you an I don't know for that one. Okay. An honest man. <laughs> All right. Um, will you tell me who are you and what is your work? So I'm a neurologist, and uh, I think uh, if you had asked me 20 years ago and uh, my future me had said I'm going to answer by saying my profession, 
my my young twenty uh, something, he would have been <laughs> disappointed in that in that answer to hear me identifying uh, with a profession. But uh, I really do identify with neurology and with being a neurologist, and I. I just feel so fortunate to have found this profession after a lot of, uh, as you know from from my book, Meandering, uh, to find my way there. And um, it's a profession that when I'm fortunate to, to be practicing neurology, whether that's at the bedside with a patient or teaching about neurology to a student or someone training in neurology, I just feel um, really in touch with what I'm sort of meant to be doing, uh, thinking about the mind, thinking about the brain, um, solving challenging and complex uh, problems to try to help others and uh, to try to grow the awareness of this very important uh, field in medicine and in science um, and hopefully inspire students to, to to join us. There's a great shortage of neurologists in the in the world. So um, so who am I? I'm, I'm a neurologist and I, uh, I embrace that that identity and feel very fortunate to have found that profession. So I'm going to have a few questions for you about neurology because it's something I myself am learning more about. But I'm interested in what you said about the 20-year-old self. Might have been disappointed in answering who are you with something about a profession, but two questions here. One is why? Why do you think the 20-year-old might have been disappointed in that? And and what else do you think the 20-year-old might have might have answered or anticipated answering as? <laughs> that's a that's a great question. I, I guess I'm thinking of um, being 20 and wanting to sort of uh, you know find my way and and not imagining. Um, uh, that way would be such a circumscribed, quote unquote, traditional profession. At that time, I was um, about to start medical school and then um, left and decided I, I didn't want to do that and wanted to live in Paris and try to become a musician. And even coming back and starting medical school, I was sort of very ambivalent uh, about, about taking on that path. And in part because it just seemed sort of so structured and, and traditional. And, um, and uh, so I often tell students who are having similar experiences in medical school, I remember the sort of elders, as it were, telling me, "Oh, it's natural to feel that way. You'll you'll come to enjoy it." And I thought I really resisted that <laughs> that sort of conformity, and um, feel uh, feel very fortunate that, uh, as it turns out, as I tell people, I'm so pleasantly surprised that I I really love uh, being a neurologist and practicing medicine more than I could have ever imagined. So maybe that uh, 20 year old would have liked to have heard that I'm still. Uh, you know, uh, just living out of a backpack and traveling across the world. And I do spend some weekends <laughs> or uh, vacations living out of a backpack, but um, uh, probably would have been a, a short-sighted view at that time. But as, as my elders told me, I had to learn that for, my, for myself, from my own experience. Mm. You know, that's interesting to me to hear you at that, maybe a crossroads as a, as a 20-year-old and looking at one path that's maybe the arts and another that's the sciences. And I think about uh, a few years ago, I read Jung's uh, uh, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, and him being at a similar place of wanting to live this very creative life, but also wanting to live a life of, of science and contribution. And of course, we could make a contribution either way. It's possible. But um, in, in your journey, I hear you say that, well, first of all, I'm curious about the music. What, when, when you say musician, what, uh, what are you talking about? Um, so I was uh, mostly a pianist, uh, classical piano, and then um, got interested for a while in composing and then in travels through India, sort of fell in love with the sitar um, and uh, was learning the sitar for a while um, with a sitar guru. And so I was uh, pretty, pretty broad interest in, in music. But at the times I left medicine before medical school and then during medical school, I actually left for, for six years as well to, to try again. I uh, was mostly focused around uh, playing the piano and composing 
and um, and learning the sitar, trying to learn the sitar. <laughs> it's a lifelong process. Amazing. Did I hear you say sitar guru? Yes, guru. Yeah, that's pretty cool. When I hear you say that you love neurology, so you chose this path, you followed it. Um, what do you love about it? Um, so many things. I mean, I think um, the mind and the brain are, are, are just so fascinating. All of the organs of the body are sort of a miracle that our body does what it does are, are fascinating. But um, anything I sort of read before uh, medical school or during medical school is to sort of learn about all the different um, organ systems in the body. The brain just seemed to me the, the real final frontier. I think we understand it so much less than other organs. And yet what we do understand is, is so fascinating. And where else do you find an organ that is trying to understand itself, right? And as one of my mentors said, this is the only field of medicine where the patient is trying to tell you um, what their concern is, what their um, issue they're experiencing is with the organ that's experiencing it, with the brain. And so I think um, for someone drawn to the arts and philosophy and, um, and different uh, types of thinking about the mind and the brain, this just seemed uh, such, a, such an extraordinary area intellectually and then the practice of it, um, you know, we're able to, through talking to a patient and examining them with very simple tools, a reflex hammer, a tuning fork and um, observe observation. Um, a patient tells us, you know, what they're experiencing, what symptoms they have. And um, through uh, what I've learned from some of the books you see on my shelf behind me and from amazing teachers and from our most important teachers, our patients, we can use that information to really figure out where the problem is in the nervous system within centimeters, just sort of through the old fashioned kind of techniques of observation in medicine. So it's, it's just endlessly fascinating and it's just such a privilege to be part of um, patients' lives. And we just learn so much from them and are so inspired by them and their families facing diseases that really affect who we are. They affect our ability to speak or to remember, to move uh, with, with fluidity, with dexterity. And so it's, um, I just learned so much from the resilience and, and um, incredible families and friend networks that, that support um, our patients suffering from these diseases. Wow. Something I want to know more about is you use the word ambivalence, right? About this being at the point of entering medical school and so forth and em embarking on this path. It's really a life's work. And one thing I wonder is, was there a moment where you either closed the door, so to speak, or you made a commitment was there a single moment where you just resolved or you made a decision? And if so, what was it? Um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about that because I'm not sure there was the epiphany that maybe the 20 year old self we talked about was hoping I would uh, find somewhere. Um, you know, I, growing up, I had sort of, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? You're always asked that, right? And I remember saying, I want to you know, be a fireman. And my mom said, you know, that'd be too dangerous. And I sort of just started listing things, said, well, I want to be a doctor. And the parents said, oh, that would be great. You, know, you should become a doctor. What parents uh, don't want, you know, their child to become a doctor. And um, I'm not sure I had too much experience or reflection uh, uh, in that process. I sort of went through it and I kind of liked science and in high school and in college, I did the pre-med thing with probably not that much uh, reflection. And, um, you know, ambivalence was sort of, I think, the cold feet of saying, wait, I'm really committing to a lifelong path. And what do I even know about this, except I've taken a few classes. So that's when I sort of left uh, for Paris looking for some <laughs> insights and only became more confused that I really loved music and the idea of sort of a shirt and tie kind of job one day didn't, didn't, didn't feel right. But somewhere I knew I was drawn to medicine and <laughs> came back to it. And then um, 
I found uh, medical school in, in some ways, as many do, um, just a lot of time in the classroom, a lot of memorization. I didn't feel that, uh, looking back, medical school doesn't give you a great impression, or at least it didn't when I was going through you know, 20 or so years ago, um, what it's actually like to be a physician um, and, and the, the incredible privilege and honor that that is and, and the joy and meaning it can bring. And so I sort of had moments in medical school. I said, wow, this, this is phenomenal. This is, uh, I'd be learning my whole life and able to make such an impact. And others where I said, I don't you know if I want to live like this. It's so much work and it can be a very unhealthy lifestyle, ironically, to be a physician, um, as you know. And I had a number of sort of moments and then I would sort of uh, waffle back and forth. So I actually left for six years to sort of pursue music and learn languages and study yoga, learn to meditate, try to do all the things I thought wasn't going to be doing as someone sort of going down this narrowing uh, path. And, um, you know, things just kept sort of drawing me back. I read a very uh, powerful book called Mountains Beyond Mountains, which is a book about partners in health, the organization that I now work with. That was certainly an important moment sort of drawing me back to medicine um, and making me realize that, you know, all the things I was working on in music, trying to um, develop my creativity, trying to learn different languages and think about, you know, how the brain processes music and language. Um, but I could put all those to use in sort of one place in neurology. But even then, going back and starting the very grueling uh, training of medicine, I, uh, you know, a number of moments where I thought I was not going to be able to do it. It was just too physically and mentally difficult. Um, and uh, somehow people said, it'll get better, it'll get better. Everyone feels like this. I thought, no one should feel like that. <laughs> wanting to do the thing they've always wanted to do and just um, suffering uh, so much in the process. And I think somehow um, things just sort of, um, you know, I equilibrated to it. And once I equilibrated to the environment, I was able to sort of focus on what was just so compelling about um, neurology and, and the practice of neurology. So I'm not sure there was one kind of epiphany moment as I was searching for maybe a number of small moments that kept pulling me back and then um, and uh, somehow just committing to the longer journey of it because it's a very long process and there's a lot of uh, suffering along the way. Mm. You know, as I as I hear you share your journey and, and ma- you know, making decisions and, and getting clarity, um, I know that's a process that we all go through in our own version. Of course, we don't all end up as neurologists or, musicians or whatever, but we're all in that, I think, on that same path and in that same Sometimes it's a struggle. Um, so I am curious about what advice you would give to somebody who's maybe at that younger self that does have a multitude of interests and uh, opportunities. Like what, what do you wish you had known or what would you say to somebody who's, who's maybe very acutely in that same inquiry? I feel very fortunate that I made a few um, decisions that um, I was sort of advised against. I would say, obviously, <laughs> deferring medical school and after I'd been accepted and then leaving for six years, many people said, you know, you're, you're wasting your time or um, medicine's more stable than music. You know, you could love music, but it could be a very unstable life for you. And um, even though, as I said, looking forward and thinking I would one day, um, you know, be uh, be, uh, saying how happy I am as a neurologist, I think that would have surprised my uh, younger self. Um, but I will say, uh, just like anything, I think I needed to learn from my own uh, experience, right? So when I said, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I want to do medicine, I really want to pursue my music to the fullest. I don't see putting those together. People would say, well, someday you'll be a doctor. And if you can have some delayed gratification, right, you'll be able to afford a nice piano and be able to do all these nice things. As a musician, you might not even be able to afford your own piano if you're not good enough and you're not famous and, and these things. So 
even if in the end I'm now a you know I'm now a practicing physician, I play the, the piano much less than I my 20 year old self would have uh, wished for myself. I'm not um, bothered by that. I'm not. I, I I found sort of what I was looking for ultimately in neurology, but I had to learn, you know, through my own experience that um, you know I needed to go and do my music thing and accept that I was shouldering the debt of medical school while going on the path of a musician. Um, no one, despite many telling me, I think you should come back to medicine. Someday you'll probably come back to medicine. I sort of revolted against that, but in the end, um, I did. But I, I don't think I could have done it and could have given myself fully to that journey without my own exploration. So I think if people are sort of at a crossroads, um, I sort of felt it was important for me to, people said, you, you have to choose one, or ultimately you can have both. I don't think I could have known what that both would look like until I took one path, put it on pause, and then took the other one, and then came back. And so um, I say, um, uh, respect the, the wisdom of, of, of the elders, but perhaps you have to, it, it's not your wisdom, it's just uh, intellectual knowledge until you have your own experience. And I. When people say, how did you come back? I said, I don't think I really could have given myself fully to what's necessary to train in medicine, which is really a, a very full-time <laughs> mental, physical, emotional commitment. Um, if I hadn't had that period to explore music and, and other things in such depth that I felt comfortable that I had been able to do that. And now is a time where I can do that less and, and feel um, perfectly, perfectly, uh, you know, in equilibrium with that. Wow. Yeah. I love that. You know, what I'm hearing in that is giving giving yourself the permission to explore deeply, I would say broadly in your case, um, it, it sounds like you traveled broadly and, and you went deep into, into some of these, some of these, uh, subjects, but then that ultimately gave you a peace of mind and a, and a clarity that allows you to commit and to, to do some, what I think is really great work. Uh, in particular, this book that I'm going to ask you about in a moment before I do though, I just have one, one more question related to this career path. That's my personal curiosity. Why choose neurology as opposed to psychiatry, neurosurgery, uh, maybe research in psychopharmacology or something else? Like, why, why did you zero in on this as opposed to some of the other places you could have landed? Oh, well, you're bringing me back to many other points of ambivalence I experienced along the path. Um, you know, I got interested in, um, let's say, broadly the mind and brain sciences. Um, uh, when I was when I was uh, in high school or so, um, babysitting for a boy with autism, um, and was just um, uh, just very compelled and interested in in his lived experience and that of his family, and I just started reading about it, and that sort of drew me initially to um, interest in the mind and brain. And um, I tried different ways of approaching that in college. I did some work in research labs using brain imaging, um, some some studies of animals uh, at that time as well. Um, and in medical school, I sort of um, thought neurology was very interesting. I thought psychiatry was very interesting. I thought neurosurgery was very interesting. Um, at that time, when I was starting medical school, I still had this idea that I would be sort of a part-time musician, part-time doctor, and that sort of moved neurosurgery out of that, because if you're going to be operating on people's brains, that has to be your 1,000% um, full-time craft. Um, uh, just as you would want the pilot who flies the airplane for that not to be there part-time, you know, yeah. hobby of a job if they're operating on your brain. Um, and yet when I went and sort of went on this musical journey and then came back and thought I'm ready kind of to commit to medicine. And I thought, well, now I'm maybe even more open because I've sort of done this thing and I'm open to sort of committing myself and kind of had to re rethink all of this. Am I going to go into neurology or psychiatry or neurosurgery? The research side, um, I think we have extraordinary 
um, researchers throughout the world looking at the brain and the mind. For me, I, I just felt that um, to succeed in research, often you have to have a very small niche and pursue it, um, sort of drill very deep. And I'm just sort of appreciated the breadth of clinical neurology. I can see maybe 10 or 15 patients in a day, each with their own story, each with their own condition. And just for me, I just felt sort of more resonated with me to be seeing individual patients. I remember a, a research mentor in college saying, if you're a doctor, maybe in your whole life, you'll help a couple thousand patients. If you're a researcher and you make a big discovery, you could be helping the entire world forever. And I had a rare <laughs> moment of insight for that age. And I said, but I think, I think I like the first one more. I mean, I think that's what I feel I want to do. And he said, okay, well, if you know that, then, then, then go ahead. Wow. I think neurology and psychiatry, you know, they, uh, Freud was a neurologist, I believe. They sort of came from the same origin. They're studying the same organ, and yet they've sort of diverged and then are hopefully coming back together. Um, whereas neurology is sort of more about the, the, the stuff of the brain, if you will, the kind of anatomy, physiology of the brain, the spinal cord, the nerves, the muscles. And psychiatry is, is more about the mind. And I'm, um, again, great, great wisdom from great um, mentors. I remember when I was deciding between those, um, one mentor helped me see that no matter what field of medicine we practice, we're going to be practicing some psychiatry because patients are going to be um, telling you their story and, um, and you're going to be helping them or helping them to figure out how are they're going to navigate life um, with illness. And if you, they said, if you do psychiatry, you'll be doing only that. But if you really like thinking also about the brain and the spinal cord, nerves, muscles, um, ordering a CAT scan or something like that and solving a diagnostic um, a problem, for someone like me who, who doesn't like to choose between things, I said, you know, neurology, you'll still get the psychiatry, but psychiatry you might get less um, of the neurology. So that, that sort of helped me. Um, but yeah, I, I had difficult <laughs> decisions between some of those um, fields. And neurosurgery, I just realized um, uh, I wanted to be someone sort of more uh, with the patients when they were awake and uh, talking with them as opposed to when they were anesthetized and operating on them. Mm. And that's how I eventually landed here. All right. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Part of what I find interesting about, about you and the work you do is that your work has a concern beyond the walls of a hospital in any given community, right? Your work extends you know, overseas, uh, deals with people who aren't perhaps as fortunate as, uh, I mean, it's not a perhaps, right? People who aren't as fortunate as us uh, living in the United States or in the developed world. And so not only that, do you have a broad view, uh, I believe, also you write about it and you share your experience and the experience of some of your patients in a very uh, personal way. So you wrote a book one by one by one, making a small difference amid a billion problems. Why did you write this book? Tell us a little bit about what is it? Who did you write it for and why? Yeah, thank you. So, um, you know, I think when we hear about public health problems uh, like inequities or access to healthcare, these problems are often framed in terms of these big overwhelming numbers, uh, right? We hear that 4 billion people in the world lack access to adequate healthcare. We hear about the millions of people who have contracted or died of coronavirus 19. We hear about the thousands of um, people um, who are affected by police violence in the United States, right? And we hear these numbers and they're very overwhelming, and yet um, we don't think in, in numbers, right, as human beings. We think in stories. And I think when we hear about these billions or millions or thousands, we lose track of the fact that they're made up of individuals. 
they're made up of individual people. And I think some of that gets lost in these arguments around numbers, around crime or gun violence or public health. We forget that these are individuals being affected with, with, with individual stories. And um, when I think about some of the things that influenced um, me and uh, these stories that I wanted to tell, I realized these sort of show us who are these billions when people refer to, quote, the poor. That's billions of people like you and me having lived experiences. And um, as one of my colleagues said, as I quote in the book, he said, you know, when we do this work, we sort of give a face to a faceless problem. We, we give a voice to a voiceless um, people. So, um, uh, you know, I'm very uh, grateful for the people who can make the case, you know, to legislators or funders that this is a problem that measures in the billions and it should be um, funded or we should, we should care about it. We should, um, you know, figure out a way to, to solve it. But it's hard to solve a problem that measures in the billions, right? And so on the, on the flip side of trying to show the, the stories of ones behind billions, it was important uh, for me to also tell my story and how just being sort of one individual may be overwhelmed by a problem that measures in billions can take small individual actions towards solidarity that can try to reduce some of these problems like inequity that seem so abstract and so immense, but somehow we can each take actions um, and to try to help other individuals and that those individual ones can maybe add up to billions uh, as well. So that was sort of some of the motivation. Uh, thanks for that. So in this, you, you share about your experience working in Haiti and I learned so much. I haven't been to Haiti um, and I want to go, but I'm wondering, you know, what the, the point of it is exactly as someone who's not devoting his life, you know, to serving others in, in the same way you are. But as a reader of that, getting exposed to things I didn't know I didn't know. Uh, I, I'm really curious to ask you, what is it that people, and I'll say Americans, what is it that Americans don't know about Haiti and probably should? Um, wow, that we could spend hours <laughs> talking, talking about that, so I'll, I'll try to be concise. I mean, in one wonderful um, book about Haiti um, by the journalist Amy Willens, um, I forget which of her books, she has several books about Haiti. It might be her book, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She says, Haiti is the most revolutionary place in history. Um, so Haiti was the first, last, and only successful slave revolt in history. Haiti um, had an in indigenous population, the Taino. They were discovered by Columbus on his fateful 1492 sailed the ocean blue voyage we all learn about. And through the usual conquistador playbook of smallpox, slavery, slaughter, uh, starvation. They were gone within two generations. Conquistadors moved on to what's now Central and South America. And the French uh, took over Haiti and uh, populated it through a, an overzealous uh, transatlantic uh, slave trade route. Um, millions and millions and millions of, of uh, individuals uh, who were enslaved and brought to Haiti. And um, this was in that time called the Pearl of the Antilles that the colony of Haiti was actually generating at its peak more revenue than the 13 American um, colonies combined. Wow. And this backbreaking labor led to um, uh, obviously revolts and ultimately revolution. And the enslaved people living in what's now Haiti defeated Napoleon's Navy. And this is extraordinary history, right? And so this is what they declared the first freed black nation. And this was 1804, 60 years before the US would abolish slavery. And so you can imagine the US reaction, the implications for their own enslaved people, they refused to acknowledge Haiti. 
The French had just lost one of their most lucrative colonies. They refused to acknowledge Haiti. And so Haiti was born into a very hostile environment. Um, and um, the, the forces of economics, politics, racism, um, I'm talking about from hundreds of years ago, still resonate um, today. Haiti was scapegoated uh, for HIV AIDS. Um, people used to say um, in the 80s when people were discovering AIDS that there were four um, H's and those H's were um, homo uh, um, um, I'm blanking on, as a doctor on the neurologist for so long, I'm blanking on the um, name of the hematologic disease, hemophilia, sorry. Took me a moment there. I'm so much in the brain these days. Hemophilia, heroin, homosexuality, and Haitian. Wow. Those were people thought the four places that AIDS came from, obviously problematic on many levels. And Paul Farmer, one of the leaders of Partners in Health, his early work in Haiti showed that actually the United States was bringing HIV AIDS um, to Haiti, but just an easy racist scapegoat to say this is a, a poor country founded and run by um, uh, self-declared freed slaves, that this must be the source of, of this and all this sort of stigma and stereotype that people were performing voodoo rituals and drinking each other's blood, all totally false to scapegoat this population. So I think it's um, in the one, one, one sense, historically an extraordinary um, place. Imagine a group of enslaved individuals, an ocean from their homeland defeating Napoleon's Navy. On the other hand, hearing that revolutionary and extraordinary um, history and understanding that it's the poorest country in the Western hemisphere, just for being born there instead of an hour flight away in Miami, you would live most likely 16 years shorter. Your child would be uh, eight times more likely to die in infancy. Your um, mothers, pregnant mothers would be 25 times more likely to die in pregnancy. And when I mention these statistics, people shake their heads and say, oh, so unlucky to be born in Haiti. And I say, no, this is the history, <laughs> the politics, the economics, the racism. This isn't luck. This is the background. So I think it's a country from whose history we can learn a lot and that continues to, to resonate very much in the, in the present moment with uh, the things that society is reckoning with. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, talking about Haiti, of course, there's these specifics, these realities. And as you've pointed out, the lived experience, like a real experience of human beings there. And at the same time, I think there's something really valuable here to look at that's this, you know, beyond any specific country or person, right, about this otherness, this foreignness, this separation, and even the name that Haiti calls the United States, the people in Haiti call the United States. I was really Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because these, you know, these stories take place in Haiti. That's where through serendipity we may talk about. I ended up um, uh, finding myself working um, as a neurologist and yet the stories being told there, um, many people who've read the book have written to me and said, this sounds like a place where they've worked or a place where they lived because this is and the lived experience of working uh, in a place of dire poverty and what that means for individuals' health and access um, to healthcare. And Haiti is uh, one, unfortunately, amongst many places in the world that, as I said, billions. Haiti is an island of about 11 million people. Um, there are billions of people in the world whose stories would be similar to the ones um, I told there. And so, yeah, I've been very fortunate there. I've learned a lot of things. I'm working in Haiti, some of which I tried to transmit uh, in this book. And when you're mentioning are some of these phrases in Haitian Creole, proverbs in Haitian Creole. And um, uh, many refer to the United States as Lodboa, which just means the other side or the other side of the, the water. And uh, maybe I read into it too much. It is the other side of the, the water there in the, in the Caribbean um, to, to get from Haiti to, to Florida. But 
Um, it just seemed so striking to me as someone who was going back and forth from, from, from Boston when I lived there to, to Port-au-Prince. Um, that's a four and a half hour flight. And so I, I mentioned that because I had done some work in Malawi in East Africa. And to get from Boston to the place where I was working there, it was almost two days of travel, a flight to South Africa and then wait for the next flight to Malawi and then a long drive sort of to the village where Partners in Health has a health center or district. Um, and when you get that far away from your home, it doesn't, maybe it's still shocking, but maybe less surprising that you're in an environment, as you said, that's so other, that's so far and, and you see poverty beyond what you could have imagined. But when you get on a flight in the morning in Boston and by the afternoon you're in Haiti um, and you see this dire poverty so close to where you live, of course there is dire poverty in the United States. And when I mentioned that to colleagues in Haiti or places like it, they said, but you have water, right? And we don't even have water. Um, so, so, you know, all, all relative. Um, so um, this idea of the other side as someone who sort of went back and forth between these places, I found um, uh, very interesting on a number of, a number of levels. Yeah. Uh, and you also talk in the book about uh, stupid deaths, the term that Paul Farmer uses, right? What does that, what does that mean? And what does it look like? And what did you see personally? What are some of the examples of that in, in your work? Yeah, so Paul Farmer um, uh, is a prolific writer and um, uh, extraordinary mind that has done an extraordinary amount of work to help some of the poorest people around the world and also really to build a movement for someone like me who was pretty soured <laughs> to medical school and imagining what was possible as a doctor to realize there's so much work. Doctor to realize there's so much work to pursue global health equity. Um, he coined this term stupid deaths in an article of his, this idea that it's a person who dies for reasons they never would have died of if they were um, in a country that had adequate healthcare resources, either because they were never able to be screened for their high blood pressure, never knew that they had it, and then developed a fatal stroke or heart attack. I think the article he writes about uh, a stupid death in a, in a boy who um, accidentally had stepped on a, a residual landmine in the country where he was working. So, you know, Paul Farmer always teaches us, he's an anthropologist and a doctor to go back, you know, more proximal. Why was the boy playing with the landmine? Why was the landmine there in the first place? What was the history of why there was war in this region and who was responsible, right? And um, we saw this all the time in Haiti, patients who would come to the hospital um, either so late because they had had to come from so far away to find a hospital um, or so late because they couldn't afford to leave their work supporting a large family. Um, with conditions that in the United States or another wealthy country, we would have caught early, treated early, and the patient would have lived. Whereas here, the patient shows up um, uh, on death's door or sometimes already dead from things where you think, goodness, we would have been able to do so much for this patient one hour flight away. Um, and that's sort of, as you know, what sort of gets me started in this book saying, is this a, are these some stupid deaths that we might be able to do something about? We have a little more time. This is not an acute emergency. And yet, as you know, I don't know how much of the book you want me to give away to potential listeners and readers, but certainly um, one or several sort of stupid deaths in that case where um, in any place else, in any wealthy country, these patients would have survived and lived a healthy, productive life. And um, I won't say because of the luck of being born in Haiti, but because of the historical forces that led to Haiti being in the situation it's in, uh, the patient um, doesn't have a, a fighting chance. Yeah. And something that I found myself asking is, you know, 
and I and I think listeners too. Uh, what can I do? Like, what is what is my moral obligation? Is there one? You know, what can I do? What should I do? You know, this kind of thing. And as I as I thought on that, I thought of this this quotation attributed to E.B. White. I actually pulled it out in preparation for this. Right, this one about he says, if the world were merely seductive, that would be easy. If it were merely challenging, that would be no problem. But I arise in the morning torn between a desire to improve or save the world and a desire to enjoy or savor the world. This makes it hard to plan the day, <laughs> right? So this, this thing we're all in about trying to, to enjoy life and trying to make a difference in the world and to balance those. And obviously, that's a very, very personal question that each one of us gets to answer for ourselves. But um, for people listening to this, what, what do you say? Like, what can we do? And I just want to interject one other thing. This idea of voluntourism, right? Because does that matter? Does that make a difference? As we ask this question, what can I do if I go on a trip for a week or something? Um, so anyway, let me, let me try to ask that succinctly. What can we do? Yeah, it's a great question. I like the, the sub questions as well about voluntourism. And I think the important question of where do we balance um, <clears throat> finding what we can do for others, right? And as you said, from the quote, enjoying ourselves or finding ways to you know give us what renews us and gives us the 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 strength and and the mental health and and wellness right to be able to do this work um, at its fullest i'm going to start there because it reminded me of a story once i was in haiti and you know from boston i had a full-time job there and would often go for a week or two weeks at a time and i think i'd been working there a couple of years and you know going a couple times a year at most i think one year i went seven or eight times was going every few weeks and one of my colleagues said, um, have you been to this, this beautiful beach in Haiti? I said, um, beach in Haiti. I said, um, you've been working in Haiti for five years. You've never seen our beaches. And I said, well, you know, I come here at such a short time and I'm the only neurologist in the country. I feel like I should be working. And she said, you're, you're working plenty. I'm taking it to the beach. You, know, you, you, you need a break. And so I think, you know, it sort of speaks to that question of, you know, um, Yes, it's important to work hard, but um, how you know how can we um, work hard? And, and these ideas we might bring of saying, "No, I'm here. I'm lucky. I get to go back to the United States. I'll have clean running water, and I'll have hot water in the shower if I want it, and um, I'll have electricity all the time." You know, the things we take for granted here. I should really be doing everything I, I can. And she sort of looked at me like, "That's nice that you feel that way. We would like to show you the beautiful wow. beaches we have in Haiti, and you should enjoy it um, and relax." So I think it sort of speaks to your quote on a on a sort of practical level. So what? What can we do? And this is something I wrestle with in, in the book as well, even as a neurologist, even trained to, quote, do something, right? This book is in part, coming back to our your first question, is I don't know what, what even I can do in these um, situations um, uh, as, a, as a neurologist, as a doctor, someone trained with a very specific skill um, that can be helpful in some small ways, but is it solving bigger problems or is that even the, the question we should be asking? So. Um, many people, you know, like myself, I read Mountains Beyond Mountains as a student. I said, oh, I want to do global work in medicine. I'm a medical student. And I wrote to the only neurologist I could find who was doing uh, global work at that time and said, oh, I, I want to do this in my career. Can I come work with you? She was working in this is, uh, Dr. Gretchen Burbeck, one of the founders of global neurology. I said, can I come work with you? She was working in Zambia. And she said, why don't you call me in 10 years when you're a neurologist and you can actually do something? <laughs> wow. I was sort of very taken aback and... Um, 
I realized, oh, she's teaching me a very important lesson here. She said, you could, have you ever been to Africa? I said, no. She said, do you know how much work it would be for people there to orient you, to make sure you're comfortable, to make sure you understand what's going on? You're a student. You can't do anything here. So why don't you wait till you have the skill to offer, and then you're welcome to, to, to come. And then many years later, I did take her up on that. Um, so on the one hand, what can we do? Um, there's so much, right? Uh, people say, well, you're a neurologist. Um, you know, we don't think of neurologists, we think of surgeons or infectious disease specialists. But when I'm in Haiti, one of the one person I mentioned in the book, one of the people there who does some of the most important work is the person who does all the plumbing for all the hospitals uh, and the partners in health system in rural Haiti. Very complicated work, right? A plumber from uh, outside of Boston who comes down and spends uh, months at a time figuring out the plumbing and how to get the oxygen into the hospitals. And so it's a really all hands on deck. And then some people say, but I don't you know, I'm, I have skill X or I have skill Y, I'm not sure what I would do in Haiti. What if I came on a trip? Uh, and this is where we get into your, your volunteerism question. And I, I, I have really mixed feelings about this. On the surface, you say what, as I talk about in the book, I would see these groups of people coming to Haiti on their spring break on the plane with matching t-shirts and, and backpacks, you know, healing Haiti. Um, and if you took all the money that went into their plane tickets, to their matching shirts, to their matching backpacks, to their, their cameras and all these pictures they're gonna take. You could probably build a school in Haiti and hire a teacher for a year. And that's just one, one week of people. Um, and it's actually the plumber I mentioned, the story I tell in the book where we're on the plane and I was sort of making light of this. And he said, you know, you doctors always think you're the only ones who can do something here. He said, those people may come on their spring break and never come back to Haiti, but just seeing Haiti, understanding what's at stake here they may be more likely to make a donation to an organization like Partners in Health. And they might you know, think twice about things they read about or um, you know, how they just live their lives and understand the privilege and power that they have um, just for being you know, born in the United States or whatever wealthier country they're coming from. So um, I think with anything, and one thing I tried to convey in this book is every topic I mentioned is complex and sort of has multiple sides to it. So if someone says, hey, I'm going to do one of these trips where I go to Haiti for a week and play with some kids in an orphanage, um, say, well, um, okay, how much is it costing you? And um, what is that orphanage and who runs it? And and does the does the money you're spending on this trip go to help, actually help the community? Or is it a non-governmental or non-profit organization that's actually taking the money and then hiring people away from sort of public services in Haiti who otherwise would have worked there? But so there's all sorts of unintended ripple effects and these some uh, negative and then some positive, right? The person who goes and says, wow, I didn't maybe accomplish much by <laughs> bringing some toys to an orphanage, but I had no idea that that's what poverty looks like. That's what poverty feels like. And somehow that seed is planted and grows and compels them to, to take um, uh, actions, whether that's again, opening their wallets and making a donation to an organization they admire or saying, oh, actually I do know someone who's a, who is a, is a plumber or an electrician, an engineer, who might be able to volunteer um, some, some very useful uh, skills. So that's sort of my uh, ambivalent <laughs> answer on that one of our themes today may be ambivalence. Yeah, in the book, you talk about a conversation you had with someone on a flight and about the same thing, right? About how it can, we can be critical of people who are doing that. But he said something to you that maybe gave you a bit of a perspective shift and it did for me just reading it. But would, would you be willing to share about that experience? Yeah, so um, I think um, this was uh, Jack, uh, the plumber who I worked with uh, there. And so bumped into on the plane. And as I was saying, I sort of um, 
sort of making light of all these people in their matching shirts, you know, what have they really done here? Um, and he said, you know, that maybe they've done a lot. What if, you know, an organization is building a hospital, they just need bodies to haul cement. Um, maybe they did that. <laughs> and he said one of um, his best uh, uh, facilities engineers from the States who helped him many of his projects that he went on one of these trips as a kid with his parents. Cause I was sort of saying, there's these whole families, like what is this nine year old kid doing in Haiti? I can't haul cement, can't do anything. This is taking resources, right? This is not giving resources. And he said, one of my best facilities engineers from the States who helps me went on one of these trips and it just opened his eyes as a youth. And so again, I think, um, I think it's sort of, there's always two sides, maybe many sides. And one of my um, colleagues at Partners in Health when she uh, read my book, uh, I think one of the <laughs> I, I, reasons I could tell she got it, she said, I hope people will read your book and understand a little more about complexity, how complicated the work is that we do. And I think that was another example of nothing is all good, all bad, right? There's complexity and there's sort of, again, coming back to not knowing, instead of judging that and saying, this is ridiculous, they should cancel all these things. Well, actually, they may have some unintended negative consequences. Not every organization in Haiti is doing um, good work or some are good intentioned and it doesn't work out. Some are bad intentioned and, um, and uh, some are in between. But um, the unintended consequences aren't always negative. There can be unintended and positive consequences to, to things like this. So I think case by case basis, what you have to say is that, you know, organization doing good, doing well, um, are the intentions matching the results? Um, and if not, um, should we really be supporting that and encouraging people to participate in that type of work? Mm -hmm. and, and I might be misremembering this, but I thought that Jack said something like, before we criticize those who are coming, consider those who aren't. Thank right? you, yeah. Um, I'm, re I'm remembering now the chapter closed on, it's been a while since I've looked that. Yeah, I think that's, a, I'm glad that you highlighted that um, aspect. Yeah, before we criticize people who are coming, what about those who aren't, right? Those who don't even know where Haiti is on the map or the history. So I think uh, it was a very profound uh, insight for me as well. Yeah, thank you for highlighting it. Yeah, and something else um, that I'd love to get your view about is this um, about the motive, right? Because there's this sense of, I think some people try to fix others when they're really trying to fix themselves <laughs> or they're, they're on a crusade or there's a position where they're coming from that, I think they think they mean well, right? And you've talked about this mix, the mixture, the positive and the negative and, you know, the consequences and so forth. But there's a concept of the partners in health is, is really important to partners in health, right? Solidarity. And when I read that in your book, uh, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, but it reminded me of a quotation that I've heard as attributed to somebody named Lilla Watson, where she says, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Right. And to me, there's a bit of a, maybe a metaphysical thing right there, right? Because in some metaphysical way, any human suffering, any being suffering is my suffering. Yes. Right. And while I'm not a Messiah, I'm not a savior. I do have an ability to respond, to act so forth. And, and so this idea uh, we could go in a lot of directions with this, but I want to come back. I want to come back to this thing about solidarity and about acting from a place not to fix or save anyone, but right. Because in some way we are the same, but will you talk about that solidarity? Yeah. Thank you for, for mentioning that. There's one, there's many Haitian Creole proverbs throughout the book, as you know, and one that is really, I think a guiding principle 
um, is this proverb, tutmun semun, every person is a person. Um, and it sounds pretty simple on the surface, but it's, as you said, it's a very radical notion because if you, um, again, if you hear of billions of people suffering from, right, there's no kind of connection there. But if you see in front of you an individual who could be you, right, who could be your brother, who could be your sister, your best friend, um, and you see that, that, that they're suffering, right, then as you said, that's all of our um, suffering, right? And you made this interesting point about, you know, there's these ideas in, in global health that the practice of global health, is it actually helping to reduce inequity or is it just perpetuating colonial ideologies because the, the rich people from the colonizing countries are going to the formerly colonized countries and, and, and doing work, as you said, is it a sort of saviorism? Is it a sort of messiahism that, you know, we're going to go with our, our wealth and our power and, and fix this, right? Um, and Partners in Health, you know, really turn that on its head. And again, not, uh, there's an intellectual framework there, as you said, but it really comes from Paul Farmer's lived experience. He was a volunteer there as a student and um, people said, you know, we don't need a student here. We need a hospital and doctors and medicines. And, um, and he talks about this in his, his writing that he really learned in Haiti what is at stake from the Haitian people he made, the friends that he made there, not from going to a conference or reading a book or studying for his PhD. He did all of those things, but it was people in Haiti saying, this is our experience. And if you want to help us, quote unquote, help us, this is what we need. And so I think it gets into this aspect of, of solidarity. As you said, the Partners in Health mission statement has this incredible phrase, something like, um, our, our, our mission is based on solidarity rather than charity alone. And of course we need charity, right? The truth of the matter is, as you said, there are people with more resources and more power, whether that's, um, you know, whatever the historical reasons behind that. And so the way I sort of tell this in sort of a parable form when people say, well, should you even be going to Haiti? Aren't you just reinstantiating these colonial power dynamics? I say, I agree with that statement, right? And yet, I do have the resources to do it. And there are resources there, for example, in neurology that were absent. And so should I not provide them because of some intellectual hangup? And so the, the parable said, what if I see an older individual who's, who's fallen on the street and I'm walking by, I think, well, I should help them stand up. It looks like they can't get up, I should get help. And then I say, well, that would be ageist of me to judge that that person would want the help of a younger individual rather than themselves being empowered despite their older age to lift themselves up, right? This sounds ridiculous, go help the person, right? Sure. So I think we can get hung up in these intellectual frameworks. And if we just come back to this idea of, as you said, person to person and, and we ask, and you know, a lot of this book is about what I call Global Health 202. There's the Global Health 101 of we need to be aware of these colonial power dynamics, be aware of, even if I believe I'm not coming from a place of healing myself or saviorism or colonialism, as Paul Farmer says, history didn't start when you arrived, right? So there's 400 years of history that precede me and this relationship between the United States um, and Haiti. And the 202 is even if I'm sort of trying to be hyper-conscious of that, um, what do patients say to you, right? You, I tell this story right, of, of asking this, the Janelle, this, one of the main stories here of this young man needing brain surgery, but a very risky, high-risk brain surgery, and should we do it in the United States? And really being concerned that with the language barrier and cultural barrier, despite sort of intermediaries, are we really understanding here that this is not some magical, you know, self saving force from the United States? This is a very complicated, risky decision. 
and the United States, right? We'd be going back and forth and who's empowered to make the decision. And my colleague said, these are your ethics, right? Here, a patient, you don't have to worry about being paternalistic, maternalistic. It's good that you thought of that. This patient doesn't know and they want the doctor to help them make the decision that you think balances the risk and benefit. They don't want it to be placed on them. That's your thing in the United States. Yeah. So I think this humility of saying, what can you help me understand, right? What can I do? What should I not do? Because there's no way I'll understand that if I lived my entire life um, in Haiti. So I think that principle of solidarity, every person is a person. If you and me are sort of here to try to solve the same problem, even if we come from different backgrounds, right? Can we sort of um, try to level that playing field um, to the extent that we can? Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that. You know, as I, as I read your book and, and uh, followed the story of Janelle, the, the person you just mentioned that uh, you made a pretty incredible effort and many other people um, to provide this life-saving brain surgery for. Um, one of the things that I was really struck by was this, um, I think this fear or the paradox that we as human beings, I think we want to help, we want to make a difference. And yet that creates, once we start, we then uh, create a responsibility or for ourselves or an expectation and others about what we'll do. And I wonder if you would be willing to talk a little bit. I'm not going to ask you to recount the story here. People can read the book and it's, it's really amazing. But we can talk about how you, the way I read it, you didn't use these words, but like you started out very well intentioned, you saw an opportunity and then you got in really deep, really fast. <laughs> will you talk a little bit about what that was like and how you managed that? Yeah, well, you, well, you got it. That's, um, I'm glad that came through um, in the book. You know, um, I know you said we'll talk a little bit later about the writing of the book, but I think this is a little bit um, related there. You know, I really wanted to tell these stories for the reasons um, we talked about. I had never written a book like this before, and I was reading books and watching movies, trying to think what makes this a compelling story. Should it start from the beginning of this brain surgery where I recount the surgeon sort of opening the skull and then flashback, right, to, to how we got there. Should it begin with sort of the ending and, and flashback? I was really wrestling with what sort of order to tell the story and to make it compelling. And I was sort of having a journal, I would sort of journal in at the advice of a writer to sort of just reflect on the writing process. And one of the major insights I had that helped me understand, um, solve that problem and the problem of wanting knowing that the book was in part about me, but not wanting to make this a hero's tale because it's really not a hero's tale. As you said, there's a lot of fear and, and anxiety that comes to being in this position, um, but not wanting to sort of be out uh, in front and should I tell it in the third person or what order? And I had this moment where I wrote, my naivete needs to be the main one, needs to be the main one, which is, as you said, I, I read about Paul Farmer I read about partners in health, solidarity rather than charity. And here's my chance. As a neurologist, we don't have that many chances. We're not surgeons to sort of swoop in and, and, and do some big save here. And I thought, this is it. I can live up to this mission statement now very naively, right? And well-intentioned, as you said. And my colleagues, you know, encouraged me, yeah, this is what we do. We, we take care of each individual patient. We're not waiting for the entire world to solve this problem when there's someone right in front of us. So I went for it, right? as you said, quickly realized this is really complicated, right? Um, as you know, I made all these, had all these discussions and we navigated and negotiated the way of getting him to the United States uh, over the phone and over email. And one of the first moments where it's sort of, you know, point one on the, on, the, on the curve here of realizing how naive I was is I hadn't even seen him, right? And early in the book, I am in Haiti and I meet him for the first time 
Um, just to give your listeners some background, I had heard that this is a 23-year-old student who was in school and then developed this brain tumor and was unable to talk and unable to walk. And in my head, with my biases, imagine 23, he was a college student. Um, and uh, my colleague said he, you know, he can sort of walk, but not, not really. And, um, you know, we, we read into emails, right? We read into telephone calls and we read into this idea of I want to save, you know, this young uh, person. And when I met him for the first time in the clinic, it's this huge uh, space of thousands of people in the waiting room sort of waiting uh, to come in. Someone yelled his name and I'm waiting for this man who knows I've been advocating for him, thinking we're going to you know, have a big hug or a handshake. And um, someone wheels in this extraordinarily um, ill and debilitated um, uh, young man uh, in a wheelchair who can't talk and his eyes are bulging out. And I have this moment to realize what have I gotten myself into? This is some, not someone who was in college a few months ago. Um, my colleague says, oh, what? I didn't say he was in college. He was in third grade. I said, well, he was 23. That, that happens here. You know, it's very poor and he was clearly very intellectually disabled. I said, well, how did he even go to school like this? And he asked his mother, he said, oh, I guess it's been years since he's been in school. And so I thought, how many lines of email did I use to negotiate a philanthropist to donate a lot of money for this case, to get a hospital to agree to this very complicated situation? And if I had met him and seen him like this, would I have still thought this could be a big save? And is it now even riskier and more complicated? And yet, here is a young man who in any many other places in the world would never be in this situation. Doesn't he still deserve a shot, even if that shot at, at very complicated brain surgery could kill him? And would he, would he understand with me coming from a very powerful, um, wealthy place, all the ambivalent ambiguity there or, or just me proposing it would just seem, as we talked about earlier, from the other side, right? Oh, there's going to be a miracle, a medical miracle there. Um, and so again, complexity. And so again, complexity. Amongst you know many moments where I realized, um, you know, you have these principles you want to aspire to, and yet the real lived experience of walking to walk and falling down and deciding, you know, I'm going to get back up, but now which direction? <laughs> do we go in is, is really something I wanted to, to show and sort of what we wrestle with uh, in general as doctors, but particularly in these situations of steep gradients of inequity and, and power and wealth and trying to do the right thing, thinking we're well-intentioned, but knowing that um, we really don't understand what we've gotten ourselves into and um, how do we kind of take steps here, blind steps in the dark here toward, um, toward the light. Yeah. And some of this I thought was so remarkable. And, and of course you did too, as you tell it in the book about when you meet Janelle, who, if I understand it was the biggest or one of the most unique brain tumors that you and other surgeons had ever seen. So, I mean, it's already this un unusual circumstance, but as you start emailing to seek care, right? Like f basically free neurosurgery, the cost of, um, you know, him coming to the United States, someone to care for him that you wrote, as I understand it, two emails and got two big affirmative responses, like in basically 48 hours. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the, the first, you know, sort of things that came back were, um, were rejections, which is part of this. Um, you know, people said this isn't cost effective, right? to get surgery for this young man in the United States, hundreds of thousands of dollars. You could build a whole new hospital in Haiti. You could vaccinate, you know, a whole uh, 
whole country probably with a vaccine that they might need. This was well before COVID. Other vaccines, even simpler ones we take for granted. That's not cost effective. And they said that that's not sustainable, right? You might, let's say a donor supports this. You bring him to the United States. What about the next patient that comes? You won't be able to do it. Focus on the low-hanging fruit. You're a neurologist. You can treat migraine, stroke, epilepsy, Parkinson's. These are very rare, very complicated things. And, you know, Paul Farmer likes to say, you know, when you hear cost effectiveness and sustainability, these maybe make sense to policymakers, right? But you never hear a person in a poor country or a poor region even of the United States say, is, is my care cost effective? Is my life sustainable? Right? That people just want the care. And he says, you know, you can't wait to solve all these lower hanging fruit problems to address the big ones. Maybe you solved you know, um, childhood vaccinations and nutrition, and then a woman comes with breast cancer, you can't say, well, we don't, we don't do that yet. Um, and so those were the initial <laughs> emails. And then, you know, I sent this to a, an extraordinary brain surgeon who I talk about in this book, Dr. Ian Dunn, who was then in Boston and is now in Oklahoma, a real virtuoso wizard. I can't think of enough amazing things to say about this person who operates millimeters in people's brains and has extraordinary results. He said, we should do this case. And if, if you can figure out that logistics, let's do it. And the hospital said there is a donor who sometimes funds these cases, the Ray Tai Medical Aid Foundation, another extraordinary story maybe we could talk about. And I wrote to them and they said, this is what we do. We fund care for people who, who can't otherwise get it. Um, when can he come? And it was just sort of this extraordinary, you know, you sort of put this intention of doing the right thing. And if you are in the right place and the right time and know the right people, and these, these things that sort of hopefully give you a signal that, you know, other people want to help. And, you know, once you, um, you know, start with this intention of trying to do what you think is the right thing, um, it was just amazing to, to us there early on. And then as Janelle's care became more complicated, how many people really rallied to support him in terms of advocacy, in terms of a home for him in Boston while he was there, getting to him his two appointments, navigating a very challenging medical and sort of sociocultural situation of this person who never left Haiti and is now in a tertiary hospital skyscraper in, in Boston um, in an intensive care unit. So um, this, as you mentioned, and I'll <laughs> underscore, this is work that um, no single person could, could do alone. This was really an um, extraordinary team of people in Haiti, uh, in Boston, and, and between the two um, to care for this young man. And, and again, to try to live this principle that every person is a person, every person deserves um, the, the best possible medical care we can, we can provide and somehow well, we can make it happen. Yeah. And that was, that was something I was really touched by just ha about how, you know, there's red lights and green lights and you get some big green lights and then you run into a wall there's a roadblock and, and you talk about this, whether it's with a passport or whether it's with, you know, the, the air transportation or the care once you're there or the additional surgeries and all like all this. And I love the way that you kind of, maybe sum this up near the end of the book where you said, I was beginning to realize that maybe this was just how it feels to do this work. Proceed on principle, struggle to a solution, address obstacles as they arise, right? And again, how that I think is a pretty universal experience, the, the fear or the doubt that we all have. Then we, we take action, we get some affirmation, hopefully, right? Then there's going to be an impediment <laughs> and then we just keep taking one step after another. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you highlighted that phrase. Yeah, that's sort of one of the other many meanings of the title of one by one by one, right? These individual patients amongst the billions, these individual um, actions that we can each take and then one step at a time, right? I remember when I 
you know, first heard about Janelle, one of the heroes of this book, Dr. Michelle Morse, who's one of my mentors and close friends in this work, just became the, the chief medical officer for the New York City Department of, of Public Health, extraordinary um, leader and advocate in, in medicine and in health equity. Um, and I sort of said, I, uh, you know, I think we should, should do this, right, from the medical, from the neurological perspective, but how do we do it? I sort of said, well, here's the first step, right? And so much of this was, okay, we took one step and something happened and we can react or we can act, right? <laughs> and act meaning sort of with intention, right? We can react to this. And a lot of people are saying, this is not going well, you know, let's stop, this is not. I said, okay, well, that's the reaction. Let's take a breath, right? <laughs> and um, let's, you know, zoom out, right? This is where we started. This is where we are. This is where we're trying to get. What are some of the next small steps, you know, we can take? And as you said, you hit an unexpected roadblock um, and as I said, also, you know, <laughs> this book really had to, I realized had to begin with my same well-intentioned, but very naive intention approach so that the reader could feel with me, oh my goodness, now this happened, <laughs> what, they, should they stop? And I'm wrestling with, should we, should we stop? People are telling us to stop. Um, should we keep going? What does that mean for this patient? What does that mean for the hospital? What does that mean for his family in Haiti? So one step by one step by one step, you sort of take a step, look around, um, what are the directions we can go? And um, as we said, yeah, proceed on principle, <laughs> struggle to a solution and <laughs> take a step and, um, and, and see where to go from there. Awesome. A formula as you know, in life, there are, I think there really are no algorithms for living, <laughs> right? But there's, there's some value in, in considering that what you've just proposed for sure. So thank you for that. Well, the last the last things I want to ask you here about um, about the, in this part of the interview, one is I do want to ask you your take and, on an understanding of what Paul Farmer meant when he talked about, if I understand right, that there are no failures. There are only failures of imagination. What's that mean? And did I have that right? Yeah. Oh, what a powerful quote, right? And Paul Farmer is you know, such an inspirational um, figure, someone I feel so fortunate to have read this book about him and sort of said, you know, that's it. I want to do that and find myself um, years later um, being able to work uh, for his organization and learn from him. Um, no failures, only failures of imagination. And I think that's sort of a guiding principle for this organization. But as you said, a very powerful statement for life, right? We're um, in some ways constrained by our own minds, um, right? And so if we uh, think small, right, then we can achieve small. And if you say, well, I, think big, I'm thinking as big as I can within the constraints that I have. Well, um, that's thinking, what about imagining? Um, and to think that, for example, this area, the hospital where we met Janelle in uh, Mirbalet, a very um, destitute, very poor rural uh, region of Haiti in the central plateau where um, Paul Farmer had, had uh, first sort of um, worked in Haiti many years ago. They were building a very small uh, plan to build a new hospital there when this uh, large earthquake happened in 2010. And there was this idea to, quote, build back better. A lot of philanthropy was flowing into Haiti. And they said, we should go big, right? We should build a big hospital here. And I wasn't part of those discussions, but I can only imagine how complicated it would be to buy the land and to you know, decide how you're going to figure out how to, how to do this. And the earthquake was in 2010. I don't know how, but in 2013, Partners in Health opened the largest solar-powered hospital in a poor country and, and in a low-income country. This place has modern operating rooms, a CAT scanner, endoscopy suites, treats oncology patients. And I thought, how would you even imagine that you could do that? If you were there, what was there before and what's still there around there? There's cows grazing and chickens and 
Um, how would you think we should build a solar power 200 bed modern tertiary academic center in the middle of one of the poorest countries in the world? Even if you imagine it, then say, okay, let's take one step toward doing that. Let's see what it would look like. How would we do this? So this idea of doing things that he was told was impossible. He was told, don't try to treat HIV or a drug resistant tuberculosis in these poor countries. It won't work. You'll just make things worse. You'll create resistance. And he said, I don't believe you. I think it can be done. And no one wants to support me. I'm just going to do it. And so he's proved that things that were thought to be impossible by the medical community or sort of the, the, the global health community, the impossible, he's shown that because he was so compelled by the individuals suffering from these conditions that we should be able to do this. If we can do it in the United States, we can do it in Haiti and, um, and we should be able to do it. So it's sort of this you know, dream big sort of idea, but um, when we're stuck, right? Or maybe we're just failing to imagine big enough what is possible um, in the world and for ourselves. I think it's a very powerful, powerful quote. Yeah, yeah that that's really beautiful. I love that uh, distinction. I've never never encountered that the distinction between thinking and imagining. That's really cool. And I'm a huge fan of possibility, so I love it on that basis. And and it also reminds me of that Mandela quote, right? It's always impossible until it's done. <laughs> right. Exactly. Same idea. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. What haven't, so before we transition to the next part of the interview, what, if anything, I know we've talked for just over an hour already. Um, but what haven't we talked about that the listener might find value in, or just that you want to talk about? Oh, thank you. Um, well, uh, you mean with respect to the book or yeah, the book or your work or your view of the world, anything related to that. And then we'll, we'll go to the lightning round and then we'll do the writing and creativity portion. So that, that part we'll get to. Perfect. Well, I, I, again, I appreciate you having me here and highlighting um, the book. As I said, I really wanted to tell some of the stories from the front lines of humanitarian work. I think most people know about Doctors Without Borders or Partners in Health. Maybe some of your listeners are even supporters of those organizations, but I really wanted to tell these stories from the front lines. What are our patients' lives like there? What's really at stake trying to live a life as we're all trying to live under the most challenging of circumstances, not just the poverty, the inequity, but now superimposed on that, the patients I see, those with neurologic disease and the associated disabilities. Associated disabilities. We're in privilege reckoning with, as you, many of the things we've talked about, how do we um, try to help in ways that we can help that are supportive of growth in the system and, um, and not sort of um, recapitulating colonial ideologies and savior type ideologies. So um, if you're interested in the stories of what it looks like to try to do this work from the front lines and brilliance, as you alluded to sort of um, my internal world, uh, doing that wrestling with and reckoning with the ambiguities, the complexities, the ambivalence, the worry, the fear, or what I call the triumphs, the tragedies, and the confusing spaces in between, which is most of it, um, then I, I hope that that could be of interest to some of your um, listeners. I'm curious to hear some of your additional reflections on the book as well, Brilliant. Yeah, I love the way you frame that, the triumphs and tragedies and the confusing places in between, because you know, that's, that's life, right? And some of us um, self-destruct or check out and so forth. And I think we all do that at some times in our own ways. Um, but I'm, I'm really just amazed as I live in the challenges that we all face, right? And about how pain is inevitable. And I do think, you know, it's a cliche in personal growth work to say, right, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. 
But in some way, I think that's true. And I love how you did put a face to this suffering or the, the unnecessary needless suffering and gave a really powerful example of how one person really can make a difference and meant, you know, a billion is made of ones. And uh, I'm reminded of that saying too about, right, no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And, and I, I'm just so fascinated by, you know, what motivates us and what we think motivates us isn't, I think, even necessarily what motivates us and how your book really honestly tells that. I mean, it's, it's, it's really remarkable insight, not only to a different part of the world and a field that, you know, I don't have deep exposure to medicine and, and so forth, but then also your own interior life. So I can just imagine that people, especially those who have aspirations to to do international work, those who want to work in in global health, um, could find a lot of value in just how honestly, you know, you write about this and, and not have to, you know, have all of the same lessons through their own experience. Of course, we're we're all going to have <laughs> our own experience and our own lessons, you know, hopefully. But that was where I thought. Um, you know, it's really is really a gift. It was really a privilege to to read. I felt like I was right there with you through through some really challenging times and some triumphs, as you said. Well, thank you for those reflections. I'm so glad that came through. That was really the ultimate goal was to to bring the reader with me into my mind and seeing through my eyes what it's like to to land in Haiti. Everything from you know the flight to the landing to really being sort of um, in the trenches on the front lines here, trying to do the best that we can and, and coming up against our own constraints and systemic constraints and trying to imagine beyond them. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, with your permission, let's go ahead and transition to the, the next round of the interview. Next part. Um, how are you doing by the way? I'm doing great. I'm loving our conversation. Thanks for your fantastic questions. Yeah. Me too. Me too. All right. So again, the, the enlightening lightning round is a variety of questions. Um, my aim for the most part is to ask the question and stand aside. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. I might ask you to elaborate here and there, but for the most part, we'll, we'll keep moving through this. Okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence. Excuse me. I'm going to start again. So please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... That's a hard one. Um... An adventure? I don't know. That wasn't a very inventive answer, but that's. Uh, I'll, I'll try to be more spontaneous. <laughs> that's great. You, you, you blocked me with box of chocolates because the phrase is filled in so commonly. Like that's not what I would say, but then I. Um, it's hard to to come up with something. <laughs> better. For sure, for sure. Try okay. to do better on the next one. Question <laughs> number two. Here I'm borrowing the technologist and invent investor Peter Thiel's famous question: What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Wow, lightning round, but these are uh, these are hard questions. Um, what important truth do I believe that few people agree with me on? Um, I guess I'll, I'll stick with the book there and say, tossing out this cost-effective, sustainable, and uh, replacing that with tout moon, se moon, with every person is a person. People say, oh no, that's, you know, you have to think of the, the big picture, right? The billions, how do you make the, the largest quote impact, but that impact is through individuals. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll stick with what I, what I know there from my, from my book there. Awesome. I just, 
I'm going to divert from the enlightening light around again for a moment to say, I love what you point out in the book when people challenge this saying it's not sustainable. And you point out neither is the alternative. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. So awesome. Okay. Question number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a phrase on it or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? I would probably just put a peace sign on there. Okay. Awesome. Question number four, what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Um, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Uh, I can say more or you may know it already. I do. One of my guests, his story is featured in that book, in manuel um, oh, wow. He's been on, on the show before and I know that's a very powerful book. Um, why is that the book that you've recommended most often? Um, so I a number of reasons and it was a book that was sort of a, a guiding light for me in, in writing this book. I think the stories there about the justice system in the United States and, and the history that's led to mass incarceration disproportionately affecting the lives of minoritized individuals, particularly those who have black or brown skin compared to those with white skin. Again, it was something I maybe knew in principle, um, but I feel like that book, uh, I really wanted to model my book after that in the sense that um, that he really tells the stories. One is the sort of main story he carries through the book that became the movie, but all these other stories and the intervening chapters. And the stories are all meant to illustrate a larger point about um, the way society functions, the way the criminal justice system functions. But it's through this very human um, lens. So I think it's what is to be learned from that book about um, you know how, how broken and how tragic the system is, is important. The way of his teaching that through these incredible human stories, so powerful of people sitting on death row, innocent, wrongly accused. And again, what you might imagine in your mind, um, and again, sort of trying to think of similarly in Haiti, what people imagine when they think of the poor or the people without education here at the incarcerated, um, just really bringing that human lens, you know, these people that he learned so much from that inspired him so much. And then the third level is sort of craft, you know, when I wanted to write my book, I really wanted to tell these stories and I really as I said, did not want this to be a hero's tale, a you know, person from rich country goes to poor country, saves lives. That's not what this book is about. And yet there's the risk of it coming off that way if not done properly. And I wanted to understand in his book, I mean, I presume he will win the Nobel Prize, right? And he's doing this extraordinary work in that book, getting people off death row, changing uh, legislation um, related to the death penalty. And yet you never get the sense that he's out in front, and yet he's very present, you know, sort of um, telling you what he's experiencing, what he's feeling, what he's learning, what he's reacting. So I went back to that book a number of times for craft. How did he manage to tell the stories, be in the stories, but never sort of um, be sort of out in, out in front, and yet you're, you're there with him on the front lines meeting these people, and you're, you're right there with him, as you kindly said about my book. So I recommend it to everyone to read, and then people who tell me, I'm thinking of writing a book, and usually those are other doctors and say, but I don't want to be kind of, you know, your book is really a study in humility. And I said, it's, it's this book, read this book and then read it again for, for kind of the craft of what is the kind of humble servant leader tell their story and other stories, but not one that looks like they're, you know, uh, accepting their Nobel prize on every page. Yeah. yeah. Powerful. Okay. Thank you. Question number five, you travel a lot 
what's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make that travel less painful or more enjoyable? Goodness, so it's been so long since I've gotten on an airplane with, uh, with COVID-19, but um, someone uh, told me when I was doing all this work uh, in Haiti and um, said, do you have the, the global entry? And at that time I did not. And I said, oh no, I've never, you have to go for the appointment and there's a wait list. And they said, it'll change your life. <laughs> and um, for someone who uh, for many years and probably will be for many years again, traveled a lot and changing flights, flights canceled, going through customs, that global entry, when you get into LaGuardia, into a JFK airport in New York, coming from anywhere internationally, you see that line snaking around in the global entry line, you just walk right through, put your hand on that. <laughs> that um, I will definitely thank the friends who told me it's worth the money, it's worth the time, it's worth the effort to keep refreshing that page until you get your appointment. Global entry um, is, is, is definitely worth it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Question number six, what is something you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Ah, so um, two things. One is um, gonna um, stop doing is I grew up eating sort of uh, anything, everything. And um, the more I studied yoga and meditation and, and saw sort of um, move towards vegetarianism, veganism, um, again, I think the, the science is challenging because nutrition is so hard to study because it's, uh, you know, so complicated, but um, at least to me personally, I feel um, so much healthier um, on a plant-based uh, vegan um, diet. I'm not sure if it's healthier than other diets, but for me, um, it has worked well. And then uh, started doing, I used to do for my exercise, essentially only um, yoga and have uh, recently with our move to Los Angeles from Boston, where there's a much longer outdoor season. Um, I'm just eager to spend a lot more time outside in the beautiful weather and nature here. So I've started doing a lot more outdoor um, exercise, running, hiking, um, backpacking, those sorts of things. So those are um, those are two things that um, I'm hopeful will uh, I enjoy, and I'm hopeful, and they make me feel good, and hopeful will be uh, good for my health as well. Awesome. Okay, question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Um, wow. Uh, I think coming back to what we discussed before, what's happening both within our country beyond. Um, a small place where one might live and what's happening um, in the world. I'll keep it, keep this one short. Okay. Question number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Um, humility, uh, probably to keep it short. And um, talked a little bit earlier about neurology as a specialty. And I sort of said, you know, um, I am a neurologist and he asked, who am I? And I, I sort of feel like in medicine and neurology in particular, it has a lot of life lessons within it in many ways, but in neurology, the first question we ask when we see a patient is where is the lesion? We say, where is the problem? Because it could be anywhere from the brain through the spine, through the nerves. And I realized at a certain point that was very powerful to start asking where the problem is before I ask what the problem is. And so I think in relationships, right? A lot of people often there's a blame on it's, it's you or it's me or it's this. And to just, instead of asking what the problem is, ask, where the problem is. I feel I haven't explored this more, but it's something I want to write about and say is let's take it out of what the problem is. Is it a problem of communication? Is it a problem of circumstance? Right. So for me, um, swapping out that what's the problem, who's the problem for, where is the problem coming from neurology? Um, again, I'm still sort of teasing apart what that means, but somehow I found that helps to sort of pause and, and again, act rather than react. Mm -hmm. And I'm 
I'm curious to know, what does humility mean to you? Uh, I think it comes back to your first question, right? Just, I don't know, right? And um, a close colleague and friend uh, of mine who's a physician who maybe you'll want to have, uh, he has a book coming out uh, soon on his journey in medicine. Um, Dr. Reza Manesh uh, might be interesting to have on, on your show once um, he, uh, his book comes out in the next few months. Um, we were talking about how early on in medicine, you see these amazing professors who seem to know everything. Anyone asks them a question, they know the answer. Patient comes in, they know the diagnosis. And you really admire that and you want to be that when you grow up. And we were talking about how um, later as you evolve, you come to admire the people who say, I don't know the most because it shows their humility. And the more you know, as you know, it's trite to say, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And there's nowhere that's, uh, you know, or it's so true in medicine as in many areas where just when you think you've come to understand something, you know, the next patient will show you that, as we say, the patient didn't read the textbook, right? It didn't fall into the right pattern and you learn something and realize um, I, I made too quick of a judgment there. Or I, you know, I, I missed something. I was, you know, people say experts, right? They think quickly because they recognize patterns, but you have to also be able to pull back and say, I, I don't want to, I don't want to commit to that pattern recognition yet. Cause I might miss something thinking fast and slow type of, so um, that I don't know is to me that humility to both acknowledge and realize that one doesn't know and then express with, with confidence, right? Not knowing, right? So actually, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what's going on here or I don't know we should ask this, this person. So that's, yeah. All right, thank you. Okay, uh, question number nine. Aside from compound interest, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? Um, so I was taught from a very early age to save it. <laughs> and uh, I'll, so I'll sort of give you, uh, you know, two sides of the coin. I'll never forget my uh, grandmother, my father's mother, wrote me a check for my birthday. And I must have been very young. Probably it was $8 for my eighth birthday. And she wrote in the memo on the check directly to the bank. I said, what? I want to buy, you know, a toy or a Star Wars toy, whatever. <laughs> and she said, but if you put it in the bank, you know, next year you'll be able to buy more. Toys. I guess that's compound interest. That's cheating. Um, and I'll say on the flip side, um, unfortunately, my, my father passed away relatively young, uh, two year, you know, in the last two years um, in his uh, mid-60s. Mid and um, I remember him uh, saying, you know, as he was reflecting, you know, you can't take it with you, right? So, so spend your money and enjoy it. Um, and so two sides of that coin, save your money. And if you've been saving it, you never know what, unfortunately, life might um, put, in your, put in your path. And so um, enjoy it. You can't, you can't take it with you. So I'm giving two, two opposite answers to that question. Save it. And then if you have saved it, um, spend it. Okay. Thank you for that. Sorry to hear about your dad. I also lost my dad in his mid-60s. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the final question in the enlightening lightning round is that if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? Uh, they can contact me. I'm, uh, I'm on Twitter. That's the way people usually find me. Um, and I'm always happy to uh, correspond with people. And I think one sort of silver lining of the pandemic, although there's not too much good to say about it is people have, um, uh, people have felt more comfortable reaching out to people maybe they don't know. And I've been uh, so fortunate, things I've been getting involved in. I mentioned my friend and colleague, Dr. Reza Manesh, has a very powerful um, uh, program called the Clinical Problem Solvers, that their goal is to democratize medical education. And they have a, a podcast and they have sort of a virtual 
case discussion. I was fortunate to be sort of the neurologist discussant there. And we have people from all over the world. Um, and so it's, you know, usually I teach and mentor students sort of in my, the school I work in or locally. And um, this was an amazing opportunity where now I'm working with students from Guatemala and Peru and India. And so um, just an, I think again, few silver linings to the pandemic, but being there and being trying to have an internet um, sort of uh, place where people can find me has led me to meet extraordinary um, people and, and new friends who I've never seen in person, but hopefully will someday. And uh, a few things that I want to let you know before we go to the writing portion of our interview is that, uh, as you mentioned, I think before we began recording, uh, as, a, as an expression of gratitude to you for making time to share so generously of your knowledge and your experience with me and everyone listening, um, I've made a $100 donation to Partners in Health. Uh, I made a $100 donation to Doctors Without Borders. And then I also went to Kiva.org and I made a micro loan to a woman entrepreneur in Haiti named Marie Rose, who's in a place, I'm saying this right, Bon, bon Repos. Uh, mm-hmm. Use this money to, to buy pills and multivitamins. I guess she runs a pharmacy. So uh, just a few few small gestures to, to say thank you. Well, thank you. That's um, very meaningful and impactful that you're supporting uh, these organizations. And uh, it, it means uh, so much that you did that so thoughtfully. And I'm sure the organizations and the, the people who work for them will be very grateful for your contributions. And um, those are extraordinary organizations you've, you've chosen. And I know they'll, um, every penny of that will be um, put to good work. So, so thank you. Awesome. My pleasure. Okay. The last part here about writing and creativity. Um, So just a few questions. I think I'll start, I think I'll start with this one. Um, When did you first know yourself to be a writer? Wow. Um, (laughs) You know, you asked me earlier, was I gonna go into sort of science or, or, you know, research science or medicine? And I remember, in high school, just really not liking uh, writing and in college trying to pick the science classes that there was a lab and no paper and um, uh, medical school, you don't really have to write many papers. And I thought, oh, this is a place where I can, you know, I won't have to write anything. I really was averse to writing. Um, when I uh, left medicine to do music, I was doing uh, graduate work in, in the anthropology of music and ethnomusicology. And from the first weeks, we were supposed to be writing papers, right? This is the humanities. <laughs> And I thought, oh my goodness, I wanted to be doing music, not writing papers. And people said, your writing is terrible. You're a typical doctor. You don't know how to write anything. Um, you're really going to need to work on your writing. I sort of resisted it. And there's two things that sort of happened during that period that allowed me to really um, start taking writing seriously and eventually find joy in it. One is um, I had felt that it was very challenging to learn medicine, unnecessarily complicated to learn things that are complicated, but not as complicated as they seemed if they would be only taught more simply. And a lot of medical students went to these books in a series called Made Ridiculously Simple, where it was cartoons and sort of very clear explanations. And I thought, why aren't we learning it this way? It makes so much more sense. And um, when I was sort of um, getting my notes together to sort of remember <laughs> medicine and go back to medicine, I found ways of teaching myself and I thought they could be helpful to others. And I wanted to sort of write a book in that series. And I wrote to the editor uh, who was a retired physician and he said, I relate to you because he said he thought 30 years earlier that it was too complicated. He wrote his first book. All the publishers rejected it. They said, this is silly. Medicine is serious. And now he sells millions of copies of this book, Clinical Neuroanatomy, made uh, ridiculously simple. And he said, 
I can tell from what you've put together that you're a good teacher and I want to help you, but your writing is terrible. And you don't know the difference between which and that. And he sent me shrunken and white and red panel over everything. And I didn't really get it still. I was probably a little hard headed, but as we, he very patiently went through these drafts with me, I saw the comment that I had gotten in my writing in classes where they'd say, I see what you mean, but you didn't really say it. And I thought, whatever, if you saw what I meant, it's good enough. And he kept saying, I see what you mean, but you didn't say it. What if you said it this way? And I thought, oh, that's so much better. And then it became sort of a fun puzzle to kind of figure out how can I make this the most clear, most concise, repetitive enough to get the teaching point home, but not redundant. And that was happening at the same time as as a graduate student, I was a teaching assistant having to read a lot of student writing. And I found myself writing, I see what you meant, but you didn't say it. And I thought, oh, um, this is actually kind of cool. This is, you know, from the neurologist's right, psych psychological perspective, we have an idea the translation of that idea into language is already imperfect. And then that language into writing is imperfect. Um, you may know this paper, The Conduit Metaphor, probably from the 70s, where the psychologist writes about this idea that you have a thought and we're under the illusion that we take that thought and we sort of print it out in language and we put it in an envelope and we send it to someone else and they open the envelope and they read it and they're getting the exact same original thought. And every stage of that is flawed, right? The thought to language is imperfect. The transmission is imperfect. And the understanding is based on the person's own bias, what they thought you were gonna say, what their experience is. So I thought it was sort of a powerful study and that got me really into how can I make this writing um, really complex. So it started actually very technical writing and then um, gradually I, I found myself um, deciding to write this book. But after really um, some very tough love from some editors um, helping me see that I wasn't saying what I thought I was saying. Yeah, part of what I love about what you're sharing is, you know, that you're getting this feedback, like your writing is terrible, but you persisted and you wrote a book that is actually, I think, pretty good. <laughs> my favorite, some of my favorite guests on this show have been the ones who said, I never intended to write a book. Right. right. But they just had something to share that was, they felt was so important or they knew would help other people. And, and they did. So obviously, you know, writing a book is, despite having word processors and access to the internet and, you know, more books published now than ever before. So great content and, and all this kind of stuff is still an extraordinarily challenging endeavor. Uh, what was, if you were to sketch this out kind of beginning to end, how did you get it done? What was the process you followed? Yeah. Um, so I was very fortunate to have, you know, people giving me advice and um, I will pass along that advice because I found it very helpful. Um, the first thing, uh, a couple of first things. One was um, to really ask myself what the book is about. Because I had sort of, I was having lunch with a friend and she sort of asked me, what's your next big project? And I said, I was thinking of writing a book about this. And, you know, there's this case and this patient in Haiti and this happened and this. And she said, I said, that would be an amazing book. You, you should write that book. And she said, but, but what is it really about? And I, I don't think I really knew at that stage the way I could answer you um, today. So I didn't know what it was about, but I was just so inspired by that question that on the way home, I just started uh, writing down. And one thing I wrote was the review I would hope this book would get. If this book was reviewed in the New York Times or whatever, what, what, what words would be in there? And I remember writing humility, humanity, and humor and sort of these sort of things became kind of like a guiding principle that I was sort of have there and say, oh, are you writing with humility, humanity, and humor? So that gets sort of to the, the next thing. This, this person told me, um, 
get yourself two notebooks. I'm old fashioned. I like to write longhand and I think there is um, value to writing longhand. Different things come out than when we type. Two journals to write in. Um, one is a journal where you'll just reflect on the writing process. Things like I said, the review you would want to get or you would write um, just what happened in your writing. As I told you before, trying to struggle with the order. I was just sort of freehand writing, you know, free association came to this idea. My naivete should be the structuring principle of this book. Um, so that's one journal to have. And the other journal, she said, get this journal. And um, as you, um, you have to read a lot of books because you're gonna have to figure out, you know, these famous doctor writers, um, Oliver Sacks and neurology, Atul Gawande, medicine. Um, what, what voice are you looking for? What's your voice gonna be? And you'll read things and you say, definitely doesn't wanna be like that. And then you have to ask yourself why. Or you read something and say, that's it. For me, that was just mercy. It was, how is he doing, how is he, you know, managing to do all the things that I had mentioned earlier? So in that notebook, you just, as you read, you maybe write out a whole paragraph from another book. You think that was a beautiful setting of a scene. I mean, what, what's there? Oh, it has a sight, a sound, and a smell. And then I read a couple of books just on the craft of writing. Some were better than others, but you start to see the principles um, in, in this work. You say, that scene was so powerful. I felt like I was there. Why? Actually, there was very little detail. It was just dialogue. And what made that dialogue so good? Why is it not he said, and then I said, and then she said, and then I said. Um, and so being really attuned to reading and picking up on things that you say, you know, I want to do something like that. And it's not plagiarism or copying. It's like people say that classical composers, right? They would, Bach would, you know, uh, hear a piece from a composer in Italy and say, that's really cool. I'm going to do that in my <laughs> music also. Um, and this happens in, in art and in writing. And so those two notebooks, um, were really helpful. And there were times in the first notebook I was just writing, I think I have a good story here, but the writing is terrible. It's just this happened and then this happened and this happened. How do I get from the story and its meaning and its power to from the events sort of to conveying the, the story and the meaning and its power? And I would say, I, I don't know. Um, let me, Just Mercy really did that. And that particular scene was so powerful. What was it? Oh, it was all dialogue. What if I cut out this whole thing and it's just me in dialogue with this person. Maybe that would really bring it to life. So um, it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of drafting and revision. And there's a lot of what I call no backspace writing, um, where you have to just get there. You can reflect in your journal and you can read and say, I want to be like this. I don't want to. There's other times where you have to say, I'm putting everything away, you know, no alerts on my phone. And I'm just going to write. And it might be good. It might be bad. You might write all morning and you come up with that phrase you <laughs> read. Um, earlier, you know, proceed on principle, struggle to a solution, address obstacles as they arise and say, wow, that's, that's a good one. That's a keeper. The rest, you know, might be junk. Um, or you go back to it later and say, <clears throat> I need to tell this story and I just needed to get it out. And for me, as you know, someone who's working, as many of your listeners probably are, and was committed to this project, but there were times where I couldn't work at it at all. There were times where I said, I kind of have Monday morning, but there's all this Monday afternoon. Can I really focus on writing? I'd look and say, what's a discrete thing? And I would make these maps for myself. Like you need to tell all of Janelle's story. You know, there are other patients' stories. Now you need to, at some point, a little bit on the history of Haiti, just for context. Um, so you have four hours this morning. What if you try to hash out like this scene? You know that scene's gonna be in the book. Just give it a shot. And then write in my notebook, you know, this one. <laughs> I, I tried and then I only have two hours. I don't have time to really write, but let me pull this one out. It was something I worked on a few weeks ago and chisel at it a little bit and try to make it um, better. So those were sort of, um, how I, how I worked, or at least the start. <laughs> I was happy to elaborate or, or answer other um, aspects of that. Something, something there that I, I would definitely want to know more about is, is the time. Uh, 
right? Because there's never a good time to write a book. In fact, there's lots of reasons why there's lots of valid reasons why it's always a bad time. But how did you think about time? How did you structure your time, both in a like an overall schedule for the project, but then in a in a habit and routine if you had one? Um, yeah, great question. You know, a lot of the writing I did um, uh, was in Haiti, actually, because there was a lot of downtime. You know, I would take a connecting flight, a flight would be canceled, I'd be in the airport. And, you know, there were sort of fewer distractions than when I'm at home and at work and, you know, work phone, personal phone, you know, all these things sort of going on. And you feel like I can't really put everything aside. But these two weeks, you know, there's someone covering my patients in Boston. Um, there is, you know, the, the bills are paid because I'm going to be away and, you know, whatever these um, things may be. And here I'm here to do my work in Haiti. But right now I'm just on a flight for four hours. Um, and there's not really any good movies playing. But sometimes I just lay back and said, I'm going to watch a movie. I'm going to read a book. Um, and then in Haiti, you know, we would work during the day into the evening, but then we would go um, back to the place where I stayed when I was there. There was no internet. Often there was no electricity at night. Um, and so there were some trips where I said, I'm just going to relax. I'm not going to work. I'm just going to read a book or, you know, just, um, just sit around <laughs> and others where I thought, you know, here it's seven o'clock. I'm going to be awake for another three or four hours at home. I would have ended up, you know, doing something on the internet, catching up on email, but here I am. There's, I've eaten, I've showered, <laughs> nothing else to do. And I had this really sort of pure writing space and I was you know, going to Haiti two weeks or one a week or two weeks, every, every couple of months. So I, got, I feel like I got a lot of writing done in transit and sort of in there and the just different type of downtime than we have here because there's less things to distract you. And then, um, yeah, there were some weeks obviously working full time in the hospital where there was no possibility of doing any writing and some weeks, right? So I have clinics, you know, on these days and I'm teaching on this day. So I'm going to write this week. It's going to be Thursday. Can I protect that day? And did I really fully protect it? Most of the time, probably not, but there were definitely some days where I said, it's a writing day and I think I can, you know, check my email in the morning or not and get right into writing or I'm going to do some email at lunch, some email in the evening, keep things moving and and really try to protect um, this time to to write. So, um, yeah, I've admired the history that heard people say, oh, they went in their cabin for a month and just sort of did this whole book. I wonder what it would be like to work like that and if I would get a lot done or I'd sort of spend a lot of time thinking. But I think there was a certain stage where I sort of had the momentum and things were kind of all in rough form and just needed to be chiseled where I could be in Haiti. And then for, you know, a whole evening, feel like, wow, that chapter is, is getting there. Um, I was really in the zone, but um, it's, it's rare to be able to set yourself up to get into that zone. So I'm not sure I have a good answer, but that's how I sort of um, juggled it. And again, I think I was really lucky to, um, to be doing this work in Haiti and I'm there sort of by myself and um, obviously working hard during the day, but in the evening, very few distractions with no internet, no electricity. And uh, that's the perfect thing we need for focusing on writing is, is no distractions. Yeah, for sure. What was the best money you've ever spent as a writer? What's the best investment you ever made? Investment as a writer? I mean, I would say those two blank notebooks. I mean, I'm sure that was, you know, $4 in tax, but um, I feel like the a lot of the real work um, happened in those happened in those notebooks can't think of a financial uh, investment. That, and and I, I bought a lot of books. Um, I bought a lot of books and, and read them. And I think, um, you know, I was advised that you'll learn a lot about how you're going to do this by reading and reacting to other writing. So I think pretty simple stuff, two blank notebooks, some pens. And um, of course, I used my laptop as I use it for 
other things <laughs> to uh, actually do that the typing but um but um yeah and reading and i guess depending on whether you consider this an investment as you know to even find your way to a publisher as someone who's not written a book like this before it doesn't have a name um one needs an agent and um, obviously that is an investment of the agent um uh, has a percent of your um, advance and royalties and all of those things. So that was a fantastic investment for many reasons. One, there's no way to publish a book uh, from my position without that. And two, because as a former editor, this agent, I'll never forget our four-hour breakfast we had, which said, I read your manuscript. There's a few problems you need to solve. And they were the exact problems that I knew were not fully solved. And she didn't tell me how to solve them, but she by the question she asked, by the end of that breakfast, I was sort of teed up and then got home and sort of knew what I needed to do to solve some of those problems. So um, I guess I didn't think of that as investment because I didn't quote pay for it up front, but obviously some of the, um, the, the small earnings from the book go, go to that agency. And, and she's, um, uh, Jill Neerham is her name, Neerham and Williams in, uh, in Boston. Um, extraordinary, um, uh, extraordinary advice and insights into how to take this from what I wanted to was hoping it could be and trying to get to to really getting it um, to there where an editor would be excited about it. Mm. I know today there's more options to publish than ever before and self-publishing is is a possibility. Of course, that was, it wasn't available like it is today, even a few years ago. But you chose to follow this, what would now be called this traditional publishing path, right? You just talked about an agent. Um, I'm sure there was a book proposal in there somewhere, but, um, Tell me, if you will, the story behind that connection, right? Because I know this is a common question for especially aspiring writers. When, when is it time to find an agent? Do I really need a book proposal? You know, should I self-publish or, or um, try to find one of the New York publishers? This kind of thing. Will you talk about your thoughts and your experience related to that, and, and anything else that might be relevant? Yeah. So um, I didn't really think about self-publishing this book. Um, I have written in the past a neurology textbook that the first publisher I sent it to rejected it. And I thought about self-publishing and looked into it and thought it was sort of a very compelling and interesting way of uh, approaching things, sort of, again, sort of democratized. You know, if you can be on Amazon, you could, you know, compete with um, others. But, um, you know, a colleague said, look, if you find a good textbook publisher, it's just going to be a higher quality product. They have platforms they can, you know, your goal in writing a book is that as many people as possible will read it. Um, that's why you wrote it, right? And self-publishing, you might, but, um, you know, the publishers really have ways of, of, of doing this. So I had thought about that before this book. I really um, uh, hadn't really thought of self-publishing it. And again, that's um, finding an agent. I sort of looked around a little bit on the internet and realized it's going to be very hard. I don't have really a platform on which to stand where people would recognize my name or want to publish something by me. And um, I'll just tell you the, the funny story because it shows, I think, how just how challenging this is and how lucky um, I was. So um, Ophelia Dahl, who's the executive director of Partners in Health, one of the founders, um, and if you're interested in learning more about her beautiful um, interview with her uh, several years ago in The New Yorker. Um, so I wrote to her and said, you know, I've written this book and I want to see if I have Partners in Health's blessing, of course, to, to write about um, Partners in Health. and um, you know, I presumed her, you know, from her position, probably knew some some important people in the literary world um, as as well and might be able to connect me. And she said, well, we do know, um, you know, a very good agent, this agent, Jill Neerham, who I, who I mentioned. And she said, I could introduce you. And I said, well, that would be wonderful. I'm very grateful. And she introduced me. And um, well, she wanted to read a little first, as, as you can understand, and said, yeah, this looks, I think this will be great. Let's introduce you. 
I didn't really get a response and I tried a few times. I didn't really get a response and, um, you know, sort of gently, gently pestered. And I was in Haiti actually, and waiting for this person to respond and would they like my book and would they be willing to help me? And she wrote, um, I'm loving your book and I never say that. And I'm very surprised. Um, let's talk. And I thought, Oh, what does that mean? And she said, I was really dragging my feet about reading your book because doctors think they can do anything, right? They can run for office. They can write a book. And most of the time, no, I mean, it's terrible. And she said, we get 30, I get 30 proposals a day, right? I can't read all of them. And you're very lucky that, you know, Ophelia, because she's someone we all admire and she's a good friend. And I knew as a favor to her, I had to look at this, but I really expected very little. And, um, it's such an amazing story. And how did you pull yourself up by your bootstraps to learn how to write? Because most um, people can't. So it was, I say that both because it was serendipitous and because it's so challenging to think that without, you know, that connection um, to Ophelia, that she would have just, this would have, you know, been deleted without being looked at. And um, so, um, you know, talking to other writers before I found her and physician writers who are sort of coming from this, as I learned, <laughs> sort of a bias that we think we can do um, more than we actually can, but very skilled um, writers who'd published books. Some of them said, well, they were very active on social media and had written for, for publications like the New Yorker, the New York Times. And so agents actually found them and said, we like what you're doing or we like your blog, would you write a book? Um, I had you know, no Twitter account, zero follower. <laughs> right, so I was coming from a challenging place and it took someone who believed in the book and saw the, you know, the idea that either you could compress the coal into a diamond or a diamond in the rough, whatever metaphor you want to use to try to get it um, to the right place. So um, I found it a very valuable learning experience also because she had such experience and I'll never forget in this conversation, I had had um, uh, an undergraduate um, who, who was helping me with my work in Haiti, sort of a research assistant. And I said, I'm working on this um, book if you'd like to read it and because you would sort of be the target audience, right? A student interested in global health and neurology. And she read it and she liked it. And I mentioned that because I was you know, talking to this agent and she was telling about these problems that I needed to solve. And I said, well, you know, I had sort of someone from the target audience, a future medical student, read it. And she thought it was pretty good. And so I think hopefully other medical students, she, looked and she said, that's great if a couple hundred med students buy your book. But I want everyone in this cafe right, <laughs> to, to want to read your, your book. And we have to figure out how it's going to really appeal to people beyond the small circle. So I feel I, I was very fortunate to learn a ton from her. My colleague who I mentioned earlier is self-publishing a book. And I was sort of trying to say, oh, I think I learned so much from it an agent who was also a very good editor and from the editor who helped me really see what was needed to get this from where I, you know, where it was to where I, we aspired for it to be. Um, and um, so I was sort of reflecting on that recently with, with that process and others sort of feel like, you know, there's too much kind of um, too many steps, too many levels, too much complexity, and I can go straight to market with what I, what I have. But for me, I felt like um, I learned a ton in that process and it made the book so much better. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know any tricks except knowing people who know agents because I was told without this personal connection, um, that would have been a deleted email. Yeah, it's amazing, the difference. And, and of course, your book, you talk about that as well, right? And people getting passports because they know somebody and, you know, so much of life is is who you know. But but not all of it, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, I okay, so my last few questions for you. One is, I, I want to be sure to ask you about your about the compass. Because you talk about keeping, you had the compass on your desk during the act of writing. So will you tell us about the compass and its significance to you? Yeah, thank you. So um, the compass, as you can see um, up there on the top of my bookshelf, was a gift um, from my parents when I graduated from high school. And 
as a 17, 18 year old, whatever I was, I was probably like most 17, 18 year olds eager to get out of the house and go to college. And my parents said, well, we have a gift for you. And I thought, oh, is it a car? You know, something I can use. And I opened this thing and I thought, what, what is this? It's a nautical compass. And um, my dad had written a beautiful letter with it saying, you know, you're going out into life and this is really more of a symbolic uh, gift and sort of to help you, um, you know, just remember that, you know, sometimes you need something to help you find your way and that, you know, the arrow can always point um, back home. Um, in retrospect, extremely moving as a 17 year old, I sort of thought, well, what am I going to do with this? I need a computer, I need a car, I need other things if I'm going to be a, a college student. But, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier in our discussion, right, sometimes the wisdom of our elders, we have to learn uh, from our from our own experience. And, um, you know, I have, you don't see it there, but the, the letter from my father under there obviously takes on uh, more meaning with his passing, seeing, um, despite me being sort of a, a nasty, ungrateful teenager, the love he was uh, trying to give to me and the, the path he was trying to show me and the philosophy he was um, trying to teach. And so it was sort of more symbolic, but in the past um, years, as I mentioned earlier, I've gotten very connected to the outdoors, um, hiking and backpacking and um, learning how to actually use a compass. That one would be a little heavy for <laughs> out on the trail, but um, the power of these um, simple tools to help us find where we are, where we were, um, where we're going. So I think it's uh, a rich symbol and then also just a connection to my uh, to my father, who, as I mentioned, um, unfortunately passed away in the last few years and a reminder of his sort of, um, you know, philosophy to uh, have some symbol of uh, your family and where you're going and where you come from and where you can head uh, back to. So thanks for, uh, for asking about that. Uh, thank you for sharing. And speaking of guidance, what advice or encouragement would you leave people listening with especially those who are either in the middle of their own book project or it's a, like a dream or an intention they've been harboring for a long time. What do you, what do you say to them? Yeah, the same advice, um, my sort of, um, this book sort of spiritual godmother, I call her Roseanne Gold, who's a, a chef in New York. She's written many cookbooks. Again, fortunate to, she was a, a friend of my mother's growing up, became a friend of our family. And then a, a friend of mine, it was the lunch I was mentioning with her, where she said, you really should write this and here are some, ideas on how you might get started. And the advice was really just, um, you should do this. And that's what I would tell anyone who sort of had this idea, because this was just a very vague, ill-formed idea. And just her sort of gently nudging, you you really should um, do this. Uh, now, that's a bit abstract. And I'll say on a practical level, so many times I was writing in this writing journal I mentioned, um, this isn't coming out well. Um, the story, I think, is worth telling, but I'm not telling it well. I don't think, I don't think I'm able to do this. Um, I wrote a medical textbook, that's one thing. I don't think I can write a book for a large audience that, that brings them into this world. And then I would pause and I would write, um, that's, keep going. This is just what the work feels like at this point. And that's something I learned from a piano teacher of mine. I had a lot of wrist problems and injuries and other sort of things from repetitive practicing and these things. And I met a, a very skilled teacher, a very particular technique. And he sort of said, we need to start all over with how your finger touches the key. It was sort of like erase the hard drive of years and years of playing the piano the wrong way and sort of, you know, put in place a new way of doing things. And um, it was very, very difficult. And there was a point where I couldn't really do the new technique he was teaching me and I couldn't really play anymore the old way because I we'd done the work to kind of get rid of it. And I was pretty young and sort of just very frustrated. I really wanted to be able to play it. I had left medicine to try to become a musician. I was like, I couldn't play, you know, two notes together the old way or the new way. And I was really upset and I just thought, is, is this even going to work? And I just remember this very wise 
uh, piano teacher uh, named Bob Durso. He's in Philadelphia, a wonderful person who really put up with me, <laughs> really being a difficult student, looked at me and he said, Aaron, this is just what the work looks like at this stage of the work. And it was just said with such confidence and generosity that like, I've seen this before. And at this stage, it's very hard, it's very upsetting, and you don't have the past and you don't have the future yet. But you're in a present that I've seen and there are steps to the future. And it just you know, stopped me in my tracks. I hadn't thought of anything about sort of meditation or sort of philosophy at that point, but I thought. And I always come back, like that's just what the work looks like at this stage. And the writing processes can be so difficult just to get started and there are points where you wanna give up. And I just would write to myself, his, his, his phrase from that moment. Um, this is just what the work looks like at this stage, that it's very raw, it doesn't feel good, it's not fun to be writing. There are stages that are a lot of fun, you have flow, you feel like you're in the zone, you just come up with a turn of phrase or you feel like I really painted this portrait of someone, it really looks like them on the page. And others where you say, this is terrible, <laughs> no, one's gonna, no one's gonna read this and just this is what the work looks like at this stage. There are stages ahead of that that you haven't gotten to yet. So um, that was powerful advice from my piano days that is an important life, life lesson, especially to something as complicated and challenging as writing a book. What a gift to have a, a teacher or a mentor who has that, that perspective. And it reminds me uh, when I studied Japanese and I learned that the, the, the literal translation of sensei is one with experience and have somebody who's able to give you that reassurance of this is just what the work looks like at this stage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's great. Okay, well, the final thing then um, is just, you know, we've covered so much and uh, about life, about writing, about the world, about the, the journey that we're on, this kind of thing. If there was a final thought or a suggestion or a request or a question or anything that you would leave people listening with, what what is it? Well, I think... I've learned a lot of um, lessons in doing this work and in writing this book. And I, I, I think the main one we began with, <laughs> I don't know. Um, and that humility, whether it's cultural humility in, a, in another place, we're just realizing what we don't know and, 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 and seeking to learn it, right? Um, and I think that brings us into some of the solidarity aspects of, that you brought out earlier, right? Because when we come from a place of thinking we know something or, you know, I know that, or I know what that is, or I know what that's like. Um, the reality is we probably don't, right? And we probably barely know it for ourselves, let alone for someone else. But we come from that place of humility and and, and I don't know, that so-called beginner's mind, right? Um, oh, I know what that's like, I've been through that. Well, you haven't been through it as that person, right? And you don't know what their life experience to that moment. So this is a lesson we're privileged to learn in medicine over and over again, because we're seeing a patient in a short window, maybe of their life, but they bring to that so much that is below the surface, right? And everything has so much below the surface. So as I said, Ophelia Dahl, <laughs> this phrase for me, which I carry with me, which said, I hope people read your book and little, learn a little bit more about complexity, understand a little bit more about complexity. Everything is so um, complicated and that need not uh, make us sort of give up on, on things, but just acknowledging that complexity and then you know uh, finding the, the simple piece that we can work on uh, in ourselves or, or, or in the world. So. I'm not sure that's a concise uh, 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 sort of ending statement for you, but those are some of the lessons I learned uh, both in this work and in trying to um, bring it into a book form. Awesome. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. It's perfect. 
All right. Again, Dr. Aaron Berkowitz, his book, One by One, Making a Small Difference Amid a Billion Problems. I hope you pick it up. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Um, Aaron, thanks again for being on the show. Brilliant. Thanks so much for having me, um, for your thoughtful questions and our, uh, our wide-ranging discussion and for your generosity in uh, donating to Partners in Health and Doctors Without Borders and to Microlending in Haiti. Um, very grateful for that and grateful for the work that you do. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.